lawyers, used car salesmen, and carnival workers. Carnival workers. What's the first thing that comes to mind when these people are mentioned? Some of the things that we would mention are probably not even appropriate for Sunday school. Where do these ideas come from? Not where do the people come from. Where do the ideas that we have of these type of people come from? Okay. Okay. Why can... Things like this and and those thoughts, how can they be harmful and to whom can they be harmful to? Okay. To us, the ones that would have the idea, to ones the ones that we would have the ideas about, and also to people around us that would hear what we have to say about these type of people. And one of the reasons is that Often, these opinions are wrong. And they can be harmful because they're just completely wrong. There's a man named David Gibbs. David Gibbs is an attorney. In fact, he's one of the founding attorneys of the Christian Law Association. He's a godly man. I've heard him speak. In fact, he spoke at Jeffrey's uh, high school graduation. He has dedicated his life and his career to helping defend churches in legal matters, mostly at no charge. He's an attorney. He is the antithesis or the opposite of the ACLU. He's a lawyer. How many of you know who Jimmy LaFrada is? He and his wife have been involved in concessions at fairs and carnivals all their lives. They're carnival people. And I will tell you this, that he is one of the most godly people that you'll ever meet. And he is a person that will share the love of Christ and the gospel with anybody that will slow down long enough to let him share it. Am I right? Use car salesman. I had a person one time that was just being really nasty to one of my salespeople. And I went in there and I asked him kind of what the problem was. And I made a statement and he said, yeah, but you're a used car salesman. I said, really? What do you do? I'm a CPA. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I don't know this for sure, but I would almost bet you money that there's more CPAs in prison than there are used car salesmen. But still, we have opinions. We have preconceived ideas as soon as the person's mentioned. And the reason I say that is because I've worked with an awful lot of car salesmen. And I know that some of them are some of the most godly people that I've ever been around. How do I know that? Because I've prayed with them. I've studied the Bible with them. We've talked about the Bible and we've talked about 
life and, and the, the Christian attitudes toward life. But most people don't know that because they go on what they've heard, bits and pieces of different things, and they form these opinions and these preconceived ideas of what people are because of the title that they have and not based on what the person actually is. And I want us to start and look at that today and talk about preconceived ideas and how they can be harmful. And I'm going to start by reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14 and verses 55 through 64. And as they're getting that, before Jesus' trial, before Jesus ever went on trial before anyone, the judges had already reached their verdict. They already decided before the trial that he was guilty. The only thing they did that held the trial for was to try to find enough evidence to justify what their verdict already was in their mind. And let's read Mark chapter 14. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, but not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Who are you going to, are you not going to answer? What is the, this testimony the, that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you, the, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. The Sanhedrin, the people that we're talking about here, were the, the ruling council of the Jewish people. And while the Romans were the true rulers, remember Rome had conquered that entire part of the world, and they were the real rulers, but they allowed the Sanhedrin, and they gave them permission to govern Jerusalem and some of the surrounding areas in Judea. And the, the, the parameters were this. The Sanhedrin could have their little bit of power as long as they remained loyal to the emperor of Rome, as long as the tax revenues kept flowing in, as long as they obeyed any direct orders from the Roman governor, and as long as they prevented unruly actions among the people. As long as these things all happened, then Rome left the day-to-day -day administrative affairs up to the Sanhedrin. They were little puppet people. And even though they really weren't in charge, they were made to feel like they were so that the people would listen to them. Now, here's the problem, is if the population should decide to stage an uprising, as we've talked about before, then the Roman government would send a, a bunch of soldiers in and they would wipe out whoever they had to wipe out to gain control and they would take the control away from the Sanhedrin. So the religious leaders had this dilemma. Personally, they hated Jesus. Most of them didn't know why, but they hated Jesus. 
One of the things was he refused to submit to their authority. They envied his popularity. But beyond that, he also posed a political threat. And this is why. Remember, if the, if the, Rome saw G, the Romans saw Jesus as a threat to their authority, they would send in the troops. If they thought that Jesus was gaining too much popularity, the Romans send in the troops and the Sanhedrin loses their power. It wasn't about Jesus necessarily as it was about them. Jesus was just the one that they could place the blame on so that they could hold on to their control and to their power. On the other hand, if the Sanhedrin themselves tried to stifle the ministry of Jesus, that would provoke an uprising among Jesus' followers, and the same thing would happen. There would be this uprising, the Romans would send in the army, and the Sanhedrin would again lose their power. So the easiest thing that they could do was to just take him out, find a reason to take him out and stone him, like they later did to Stephen. Without a trial, no, no problems, this is the law, he broke the law, we'll just take him out and stone him. Problem was, they didn't have that authority to do that. And if they would have done that, because of Jesus' popularity, it would have looked more like an assassination than an execution. And again, it would make them look bad. So here we have this whole thing of self-preservation, trying to hold on to their power, hold on to their control, and to make themselves look good. And whatever it took to do that, they were willing to do it, even if it meant killing someone. Despite their anger at Jesus, and despite the fact that they'd already decided in their minds that he was guilty, the religious leaders, they struggled with sufficient evidence to convict him. So they tried a couple things. When all else failed, they, they resorted to just telling lies. We, can't, we don't have any evidence, so we'll just tell lies. But the Bible says, and Mark wrote, that they couldn't even get together on their lies. So the lies didn't agree, so they had to throw that out. So then they said, I'll tell you what, let's just take something that he said and twist it to mean something that it really didn't mean. And Jesus had made a statement back in John 2 and 19. And he said, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now, Jesus was talking to him about himself. He was talking about if you destroy this body, it's going to raise back up in three days so what they did is they took it and they twisted it saying he said he's going to tear down the temple well the temple was the holiest place they had and if this guy was going to tear down the temple then he must be a terrorist he must be a really bad person because he's going to tear down our holy place that's not what jesus said it's not what he meant but since they had no evidence let's just take something and twist it to make this guy look bad. Finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, he decides to address Jesus directly. And he looks at him and says, are you going to answer these allegations that these men have made against you? And Mark says that Jesus didn't even reply to it. What about all the stuff these guys are saying? Are you not going to stand up for yourself? Jesus just stood there. 
And so Caiaphas asked this next question, and obviously he had thought this next question out very, very well. And he asked Jesus, are you the son of the blessed one? And this would be a title equivalent to saying, are you saying that you're the son of God? Now here's, I believe, why he asked this question. If Jesus said no, then all of his disciples and all of his followers and all of those that had followed him for these three and a half years of his ministry would say he was a false teacher. If he said yes, then they'd have him on blasphemy. So he thought this out and he knew that this question was one of those questions that you really don't have an answer for. But Jesus answered the question. And it was a real simple, real simple answer. He said, I am. Right to the point. And at this point, the high priest just pitches a fit. He has this dramatic fit of anger. And he rips his clothes. And he says, this man claims to be God. This is blasphemy. I can't believe this. Here I am. I'm this holy person. And this man's claiming to be God. I'm appalled at this. And shows this little act. And the whole thing was this, that blasphemy automatically meant death. So he he puts on this big dramatic act about how he's so hurt that this man would claim to be God. And automatically now they've got what they wanted blasphemous mark 15 verses 1 and 2 very early in the morning the chief priests with the elders the teachers of the law and the whole sanhedrin reached a decision they'd reached that decision before all of this took place but now they had an official decision that it was blasphemy they bound jesus led him away and handed him over to pilate are you the king of the jews asked pilate yes It is as you say, Jesus replied. So here we see that they wait till the next morning to take Jesus to the Roman authorities. And the Roman court started early in the morning, so they want to get there first in line because this is really important. And they bind Jesus up and they take him to Pilate. And they didn't have any authority, as we said, under Roman rule to execute anybody. So they had to take him to Pilate because Pilate did have that authority. Who was Pilate? Pilate was an appointed governor. He was a Roman citizen. He was an appointed governor over the area, over Jerusalem and some surrounding areas of Judea. He was appointed to the position by the emperor of Rome. Pilate was not very popular with the Jews. One of the things, probably his first and biggest mistake, when he first came in, his soldiers were carrying these military standards that had the insignia of the Roman government on it. Now, that didn't go over real well with the Jews because they went back to the Ten Commandments and it went against the Second Commandment on having graven images. And so over this one thing, they said, we'll rise up and fight if you don't stop your soldiers from doing that. Isn't it amazing that that they would be okay with being completely taken over and have everything all taken up away from them but they get real picky on certain little things. That's a whole other message. But it's 
Nonetheless, that's what happened. And Pilate actually gave in to him on this. He said, well, to keep the, from just being all kinds of trouble, guys don't carry around those, those military standards. That was okay. But the next thing Pilate did is he actually took money from the, the temple offerings. See, he was building this, <clears throat> this water system for Jerusalem. Remember, the Romans were very, very technologically minded for that day. And they were building this fresh water system in Jerusalem. And since he didn't have enough money to do it, he took the money out of the temple offerings, which really didn't go over very big. And the Jews felt abused, so they rioted. And when they rioted, what we've said before would happen, that's what happened. Rome sends in soldiers and ends up killing a bunch of the Jews over this. So Pilate's insensitivity in these two situations had not really helped his reputation with the Jews or with the Roman government. So we have to look at everybody's place in this story because everybody is important. So Pilate is kind of trying to make the Jews happy. He's trying to make his bosses happy and not get anybody offended. Why? Because he wants to keep his job. So the religious leaders present Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate finds himself in this awkward position. If he upsets the emperor, then Pilate could lose his job, and maybe more than that, he could lose his life. If he offends the religious leaders, then they have the right to go around him and make an appeal to the emperor so he still gets in trouble. So he has to find a solution. He knew that the religious leaders hated Jesus. That was even obvious to Pilate. And although Pilate had no use for religion, the Jewish religion was so intertwined with Jewish law that often it was hard to separate. That's why we have, one of the reasons we have this separation of church and state in our government is because when they get intertwined too much, then it becomes kind of a, a mess. You end up with the government trying to run the church or the church trying to run the government, and really that's not the way it was meant to be. He also knew that if if anyone, especially somebody like Jesus that was very popular, if he went around claiming to be a king, then the Roman government was going to hear about it and they were going to have a problem with it. He'd get a phone call and it would be the emperor and say, uh, Pilate, who's this king that we're hearing about? We were watching Fox News and this king guy called Jesus. What's going on there? Can't you control this place? So he doesn't want this to happen either. So he's, he's in this conundrum here of what do I do? I don't want to make anybody mad and I don't really care about Jesus. So the... The answer was, we just have to find a way to kill him. But first, he had to find and find out if this man was guilty of anything that was punishable by death. So he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And in the King James Version, Jesus says it like this. He says, thou sayest it. Or in other words, that's what you say. 
Are you the king of the Jews? Well, that's what you're saying. That's what everybody's saying. But I like the, the, the New International Version answer better. Jesus simply looks at him and says, Yes, it is as you say. Yes, I am. And then the chief priest, who had all gathered around, began to accuse Jesus of all these different things. And Pilate asked Jesus again, kind of like Caiaphas did. He said, are you going to respond? Look what these men are saying about you. Aren't you going to say anything? In verse 5 of Mark 15, it says that Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Here he already has this idea that he doesn't like this guy because of what he's heard from all these other people. He has this idea of Jesus that he's this horrible, bad man. Yet when this man Jesus is accused of all these things, and he says, aren't you going to respond? Aren't you going to defend yourself? Jesus doesn't even reply. And Pilate is amazed. His preconceived idea of Jesus, he's finding out, is wrong. This guy's really not that bad. He doesn't seem nasty or mean or, or hateful. But he's still looking for this politically correct way to get out of the situation. And he knew that it was customary at the feast of the Passover to release a prisoner that the people requested to be released. And there was this man named Barabbas that was in prison for insurrection. Let me talk just a minute about Barabbas. I always thought of Barabbas as being like this serial killer that just went around randomly killing people. And he was this horrible, bad person. Well, maybe he was. But the reason he was in prison was not for just going around and randomly killing people. He was part of an uprising against the Roman government. And he had killed people in this uprising. That's why he was in prison. So really, he was kind of popular among the Jews because he had fought for the Jewish people against Rome. And the Romans put him in prison because of it. And he'd done pretty good because it said that he had killed people in the insurrection. And the people came to Pilate, as they always did on in the Passover, during the Feast of Passover, and they said, would you do for us what you normally do and release a prisoner? And Pilate said, yeah, sure. You want me to release this king of the Jews? And they said, no, we want you to release Barabbas. It wasn't so much that they hated Jesus as it was that the Sanhedrin and the high priest and all of these people had gotten to the general population and told them things about Jesus and got them to form these opinions and these preconceived ideas about Jesus. And so when Pilate said, do you want me to release this king of the Jews? They said, no. Release Barabbas. He's kind of a hero. He fought against you guys. And since we don't like you, let him go and 
you know, whatever with this Jesus guy. If the crowd had said, yes, let this king of the Jews go, Pilate's off the hook. He can look at the religious leaders and say, hey, I was going to help you out, but hey, the people said no. They said, let him go. But the religious leaders had gotten there and they had thrown out their little opinions to the people and the people formed a preconceived idea about Jesus and most of them didn't even know him. So instead of an innocent man being released, Jesus, a criminal was released and that was Barabbas. So Pilate tries again to solve this whole problem of Jesus. In effect, he tries to remove himself from the decision. And he steps up before the people and he says, okay, I'll release Barabbas, but what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews guy? Thinking, they won't care, so I can just let him go. But instead, Pilate is surprised at their answer. They say, crucify him. They start screaming and hollering and demanding that this Jesus is crucified. Why? Ideas that people would put in their heads. We don't like him. How come? I don't know. I just don't like him. Absolutely. That's That's right. I've told this story before and when I was in college there was a a guy that was a year behind me and I did not like him. I didn't know him. But I didn't like him. And <clears throat> I mean I never did anything like horrible to him. I just didn't talk to him and and I had this opinion of of the way he was. And one night we were in, in service at church on a Sunday night, and I remember it vividly. I was on this far side of the church, and it was one of those nights when there was no preaching, and people were praying, and, and the Spirit of God was really moving, and he was on the other side. And as I start to move towards the middle of the building, all of a sudden he starts moving towards the middle of the building, and we find ourselves next to each other. And something in my heart just said, what, what are you doing? And I turned to him and I said, I don't know why, but I've, I've just never liked you and I, I'm sorry. I don't have any reason for that. And he looked at me and he said, I feel the same way. <laughs> he didn't like me either. And I hugged his neck and we prayed. And we became good friends. In fact, that was 30 years ago that I graduated from college. And I still have a pair of cowboy boots that he gave me. And I remember him every time I see those boots. Why? Because I had this preconceived idea based on maybe some false information or based on things that I thought I saw that maybe I really didn't see. And so I formed this opinion. So here Pilate has said, thinking he's got a way out, 
well, what do you people want me to do with the king of the Jews? And they say, crucify him. And now he's painted himself into a corner. Here I was, I asked them what they wanted to do, thinking that they would say, we don't care. And instead they say, crucify him, so I guess I have to. And he didn't want to become even more unpopular than he already was. And so even though it violated Roman law, because there was no evidence against this man, and it probably violated his own conscience, he gave in. And verse 15 says that Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. I don't like this man and I don't even know why. I've talked to him and he seems like a nice enough person. But everybody says he's bad, so I guess he must be bad. And the events leading up to this point in the lesson could be attributed to preconceived ideas of one person toward others. And it was based on certain men's opinions of someone they didn't even know. Their preconceived ideas were based on opinions of someone they didn't know and partially just looking out for themselves. I, I don't know him, but I'm told that I don't like him. So I'll just go along with I don't like him. Besides that, it helps me to not like him. And the human trait of that and forming of these types of opinions are too often made on personal, partial, or even false information. And this is not anything new. It didn't start at Jesus' time. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament and see that this was something that was a human trait back then. If you look in the book of Samuel, the original king of Israel was Saul. And Saul had been rejected by God to continue to be the king. He had done some things and God said, okay, you're not going to be the king anymore. And after some time had passed, God spoke to Samuel, who was a prophet, and who God used to get certain things done. And God spoke to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 and 1, and he told him, okay, here, the time for mourning and grieving over Saul is over. Let's move on. We have to find a new king. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to Bethlehem, and I want you to find this man named Jesse. One of his sons will be the next king of Israel. So Samuel goes down to Bethlehem. He gets Jesse together, all his sons together, and he begins to walk down the line, or rather has the line walk by him, and he sees the first one, and his name is Eliab. And he looks at Eliab and he goes, this guy looks rather kingly. 
I think this guy will work. It must be him. Besides, he's the first one that came up, so hey, I'm done here. Why? Because Samuel had this preconceived idea of what a king should look like. I heard somebody in a focus group the other day, and this is not a political statement, this is just part of the lesson. They were talking about, well, why would you vote for Barack Obama? And somebody said their answer was, he looks presidential. Okay. They said, well, what does he, what, what of his policies do you like? Um, I really don't know, but he looks presidential. This was a, a person that was going to vote for the President of the United States based on what they thought a president should look like. Forget the policies. And this is what Samuel did. He said, I know what I think a king should look like, and this Eliab guy looks like that. But God had a different idea. Here's what God said in verse 7 in response to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse brings one of the other boys over, and he says, Samuel, I want you to meet my other son. This is another one of my sons. This is Abinadab. And I, he's a good kid. He'd make a great king. But Samuel remembered now what God had said. And he looks at Abinadab and says, nope, this isn't him either. So Jesse starts bringing every one of his sons by, and when he's all done, Samuel looks at him and says, is this all your sons? And Jesse goes, well, no. There's this one other one, this little, the youngest one named David. He's out tending the sheep. He's, he's not here. And Samuel says, send for him. In fact, we're not going to sit down until he gets here. Well, then hurry. Because he's been here for a long time and we've been standing up, so go get David and bring him back. He brings David back. And in verse 12, So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. He wasn't the tall, dark, and handsome that Samuel was thinking. He was ruddy. Ruddy means he had kind of probably reddish hair and freckles. And he was young. He doesn't look very kingly. He's a handsome boy, but he's, he's a boy. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. As human beings, it's, it's hard not to follow our personal opinions on things. And often people base their decisions solely on that, personal opinions. By what attributes do we judge people? Do we have preconceived ideas and concepts that limit our ability to minister? Do we tend to categorize and label people? Do you have a set image in your mind 
of those that you seek to minister to. Let me ask you this. Since God has called each one of us to a specific ministry, as we have talked about so many times, each one of us is called to a ministry. There is no one that's called to be a sitter. We're all called to a ministry. And since God has called each of us to a ministry, and through that ministry, we are to seek the lost and build the kingdom, shouldn't we be open to all possibilities that might present themselves and not just those situations that fit into the image that we have created? As we minister... As we do what God has called us to do, are we looking at people's hearts or their outward appearance and their actions? I can tell you this, that we're looking at the outward appearance and actions because we can't see their heart. Samuel had his idea of what a king should look like. Tall guy. Saul was a tall man. And he automatically assumed that if somebody's going to take Saul's place, he needs to be a tall guy. Big guy. And we know that David was nowhere near that because when he tried to put on Saul's armor, it didn't fit. It was way too big. So he didn't look very kingly. The Sanhedrin... In Jesus' day, they had ideas of what Jesus was doing and why he was doing it. They figured, well, he's trying to take our jobs. He's trying to turn the people against us. He's just another one of those crazy people that comes along every few years and just tries to stir up trouble. And he's more popular than we are, so therefore we hate him. Pilate had his ideas of what was going on with the whole Jesus situation. Pilate thought, well, he seems to be an okay guy, but he could stir up trouble for me. And all these religious leaders say he's bad. And since they hate him, I guess I can too. And it's not just those people that have their preconceived ideas. We do too. By all appearances, things often seem a certain way. The problem is that appearances are so many times wrong and they can be deceiving. Too many times, as Christians, that are supposed to be doing the work of God in reaching the world, our preconceived ideas are just like Samuel's and they're based strictly on appearance on second-hand information like the Sanhedrin and Pilate, and on bits and pieces of our own observations. The problem is, again, as we said before, what we see is just those things. We don't see their heart, but God does. Do we want only people that are successful coming through our doors? Well, of course we do, because, you know, if people that are successful come through, then they can put more money in the offering and they can give more and we'll be able to do this and we'll be able to do that. And if homeless people come in, then instead of giving, they're going to be taken. So we decide that we would rather have 
the successful people. Do we want only people that have the same fashion sense that we do walking through the door? Well, I don't really like the way they dress. I don't like the way they comb their hair. If someone came in this morning during the worship service with green hair and sat down beside you, what would your reaction be? What would you do? God can never save you with green hair. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Some churches, people would. They wouldn't be so worried about the person's heart as they are worried about the person's hair color. There you go. That's right. If someone comes in this morning during the middle of worship service and every inch of exposed skin on their body is tattooed in this mural of the Revolutionary War, what are you going to do? Well, God can't save people with tattoos. Yes, He can. You see, but what we're looking at, if we're not careful, are the tattoos. We're not looking that that person has a soul and that that person is here and that because they're here, God can touch their heart and maybe change their life if they let Him. Definitely change their life if they let Him. That's right. Well, that's just not the kind of people I'm looking to reach out to. Well, see, that would be the problem. It's not our choice. Who is God looking to reach out to? I think the Bible says, whosoever will. And in fact, if you read John 3 and 16, it says, for God so loved the world. Now, that's our first key there, is he says, the world which would be everyone. He didn't say that God so loved those that look and think like you look and think. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. In our modern terminology, it would be whomever Whoever, and unless your definition of whoever is different than mine, then whoever means tattoo guy and green-haired girl. We are called to reach out to the world. We are called to love those in the world. We can't save them. That's God's part. But we are called to reach out to them and to love them. Samuel would have picked Eliab as king. And you know what? He would have been wrong. And the sad part is that I'll admit it of my own. I've been wrong before on those things too. 
we find ourselves sometimes saying, boy, I just, I wish I could get that person to come out to High Point Church. I wish that person would just come out to church. When in actuality, we should be saying that to everyone we meet. Not just the ones we like. Not just the ones that that look like our idea of what a High Point Church member should look like. There's an instance in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 10 where God had called Peter to go do something. And it starts when Peter goes up on the roof to pray. And as he's praying, God lets him see a vision. And this vision is of this this giant sheet coming down from heaven. And the sheet is full of of four-footed animals. The Bible says four-footed animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice says to Peter, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, whoa, no way. I'm a Jew. And those animals would go against the dietary laws of the Jews, so I've I've never eaten anything unclean. Remember, the Jews had certain things. They couldn't eat certain animals. They couldn't eat certain things. And here was this voice saying, just eat whatever. And Peter said, no, I can't do that. And this happens three times. That he sees this thing, and the voice says, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, because I'm a Jew, and it would violate my dietary laws, so no, I I just can't do that. And finally, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 15, this voice says, The voice spoke to him in a a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. It took another time for it to actually sink in. Because that was the second time. Finally, Peter gets up after he sees this vision, and he goes downstairs, and when he gets downstairs, there's three men that had been sent there several days before to get Peter and take him back to the house of a man named Cornelius. And normally Peter would have said, no, I'm not going back to see Cornelius. He's a Gentile. I only preach to Jews. But then this vision runs through his head, and it's that aha moment. Aha. I get it. I get it, God. You were saying... That if you tell me to go do something and talk to somebody, it's not up to me to decide if they're okay or not. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he preaches to Cornelius and his family and the Bible says that they were all saved. Had Peter gone with his preconceived ideas of Gentiles, it would have never happened. So like Peter and the rest of the Jews of that day, we have, often have, preconceived ideas of who can and should be saved. And like Peter and the Jews, sounds like a 60s rock band, 
But like Peter and the Jews, our ideas are often inaccurate at best. We tend to think that people only like ourselves can be saved. And we even oftentimes think that only people that believe like we believe can be saved. Supposed Christians have a very long history of excluding people from Christianity over things like music, communion. Well, you know, they use wine. Or the other people go, well, you know, they only use grape juice. Over certain types of clothing. Or even the name that they have on the sign out front, we say, well, God can't save them. Look what it says on the sign. And none of those issues is ever made a condition of salvation in the Scripture. None. You can disagree. As someone said one time, you have the right to be wrong. None of those things are conditions for salvation in the Scripture. If you want to use wine for communion, go ahead and do it. If you want to use grape juice for communion because that's what you feel is the right thing, go ahead and do it. I don't think you're going to stay out of heaven or go to hell because you used grape juice. So what really is important? We all have our own ideas, and to an extent... That is good. But when it stops us from doing what God has called us to do, to preach the gospel to the world, it is totally unacceptable. When our preconceived ideas stop us from doing what God has told us to do and what God has commanded us to do in the Word, it's unacceptable. Not to me. To God. And I'm not saying that every person's view of salvation is correct. Don't leave out of here and say, well, he said that you can just believe whatever you want to believe and it's fine. No, I didn't say that. What I am saying is that too often preconceived ideas that we have of others, hold on, don't come from the Bible. Those ideas are ours. It's a culmination of appearances, False facts, hearsay, and just simply being wrong. And as Christians, we have to find a way to look deeper than those things to discover the truth about people and to accomplish what God has called us to do. I would almost guarantee you that if you took the the majority of the the Sanhedrin and those people and just got them off to the side away from everybody else and said tell me exactly what is you don't like about Jesus I don't really know and you could get Pilate off to the side and say Pilate could you tell me what it is that you you just hate about Jesus I, I don't really know those people hate him and they tell me he's bad well what about your personal interaction with him what did you see Seemed like a pretty nice guy. 
And you get all the people that were screaming and hollering and demanding for crucifixion for Jesus, you get them off to the side by themselves and you say, now I saw you out there screaming and hollering and demanding crucifixion for Jesus. Tell me exactly what it is that you don't like about Him. I don't know. But you know, my, my next door neighbor's cousin's sister's boyfriend said that she heard from her boss's wife's nephew that he really wasn't a very nice person. And so you automatically have this idea that causes you to get out and say, crucify him. Sometimes it means that we just have to accept things because if there's no particular biblical evidence to the contrary, we might just be wrong. Could we purpose that in the meantime, that we make an effort to not be like those that judge Jesus? And that we make an effort to extend, extend the same grace to others as we would wish that they would extend toward us. Remember this. Having preconceived ideas is not necessarily bad. We all have certain preconceived ideas. However, what we do with them is where we need to be careful. If you see someone and you automatically have this preconceived idea of them, sometimes you just can't stop yourself. But what you do with that preconceived idea is very, very important. Pilate was wrong. The Sanhedrin and Caiaphas were wrong. Even the wise prophet Samuel was wrong. We have all probably been wrong in our preconceived ideas about others in the past. But the question is this, and I'll leave you with this. What will we continue to do with them in the future? God bless you.